0: Well, good morning, East Vancouver. I want to ask this morning a simple question as we begin our time at Lamentations 3. How do we move from hopelessness to hope? How do we move from hopelessness to hope? From despair to delight, from rock bottom to resurrection, as it were. It seems a given for many people that once we've hit rock bottom, our next move must be upwards, right? Must be to something better. And so the phrase goes, it can only get better from here. It can only go up from this point. But we know that's not true, don't we? We soon discover that what we once thought was rock bottom was actually still on the way down. It can, and in fact it did, get worse. Or we find that things just don't on their own get better. We've hit rock bottom, and here we remain. Maybe we've spent years here. No, we shouldn't assume that we just naturally move from lament to praise, that just on our own we move to that point. And so how does it happen? How do we move from hopelessness to hope? See, as we come to our text this morning, what we find in the first 20 verses is much like what we've read so far in Lamentations, isn't it? It seems like a repeat of the past two weeks. God is judging Israel for their covenant unfaithfulness, and Jerusalem, this poet, is lamenting. He's wailing on their behalf. Now, their hopelessness, we must remind ourselves always in this series, their hopelessness, their suffering, is due to their covenant unfaithfulness. God is judging them. It's clear in our Bibles. But our hopelessness is a bit different, isn't it? We might be weeping this morning because we simply live in a fallen world. We feel the effects all the time, experience the effects all the time of sin and rebellion in our world. Or maybe you're reaping what you've unwisely sown, and so you are lamenting that way. Whatever the case, despite our differences between then and now, it is still, in Lamentations 3, a hopelessness we can relate to especially because as we turn to this third poem, the lament becomes so personal. Look at Lamentations 3, verse 1 with me. I am the man who has seen affliction under the rod of his wrath. It almost sounds like a a, a contemporary country song, right? It's a sad song that ultimately drives to hopelessness. Look at verse 17 to 18. My soul is bereft of peace. I have forgotten what happiness is. And so I say, my endurance has perished, so has my hope from the Lord. And yet, as you already heard this morning, as we read Lamentations 3, it doesn't end in hopelessness. It begins there, right? But it does not remain there. In fact, Lamentations 3 is the only reprieve we'll get in this entire book. Even its structure, how it's built out, reminds us that we're looking at something different this morning. Uh, The first two poems, Lamentations 1 and 2, We're 22 verses, right? All beginning with the same letter of the Hebrew alphabet, this acrostic style. Now we can see this in our English translation, how it breaks Lamentations 3 down. The verses, each of the poems, or the sections of the poem, is broken down into three lines. And all of those three lines, individually, all starting with the same letter of the Hebrew alphabet. All this to say, structurally, something different is happening this morning. And the structure not only tells us that Lamentations 3 is different, it also tells us that here we have something unique to behold. Here we have uniquely in this book hope. Hope. For two chapters, we've imagined the poet sitting in the rubble of Jerusalem in tears. But for this Sunday alone, we'll see those tears turn to worship. Again, I want to ask how does this happen? How do we move from hopelessness to hope? I, I want to answer this question this morning by showing us four truths, four truths that move the poet and us from hopelessness to hope. They'll be on the screen. Four truths that he has to called to mind. Ready? God's mercy never ends. God is worth waiting upon. Third, that God will speak the final word. And that fourthly and finally, God does not afflict from his heart. So let's start with that first truth. God's mercy never ends. Read verses 21 to 24 again with me. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul, therefore I will hope in him. we'll stop there. In verse 21, his steadfast love is his hessed love, his covenant love to Israel. It's his covenant love rooted in his character that we looked at last week. Faithful to judge, yes, but faithful to restore, to redeem his people, absolutely. So we see this hessed love right out of the gate. And then we read this. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every. Morning. Now maybe you've seen this verse written in calligraphy on a piece of of Christian art, right? It sounds nice. His mercies never end. They are new every morning. It sounds really comforting, but what does it actually mean? What does it actually mean? I want to suggest a few things. For one, it means that even our ability to bring our lament to the Father is in itself a gift. Our ability to lament to a God who hears us is in itself a gift. There are some translations that translate verse 22 like this Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed. For, for the poet, he, he knows it could be worse. He knows that God would be in the right to completely demolish Jerusalem, that God would be just to completely wipe them out. He, he'll admit later in verse 39. Why should a living man complain, a man, about the punishment of his sins? And we, the church today, could say very much the same. Who are we if not for the intervening and saving work of Jesus in our life? Through his death and resurrection, who are we if not in Christ to bring our lament to a holy and just God? If it weren't for Jesus, who are we to complain about the just result of our sin, to bring our sorrow to Him? And yet we can do this. We're invited to this. We mercifully, graciously have somewhere to bring our pain. And the second thing is the person to whom we bring our pain, he never gets exhausted. He never gets exhausted. He never runs out of mercy. He never runs out of grace. And I want you to consider this with me. When was the last time you had to show mercy or grace to someone? Do you have that moment? Do you have that person in your mind? Now, how many times did they ask for mercy? How many times did they ask for grace? Once? Twice? Maybe a hundred times? My number is eight. I have a total of eight mercies in a day. That's about it. And maybe that's a bit generous. I have eight mercies in a day. And that's not all for one person. I have eight mercies total to go around for 24 hours that I can extend to other people. Beyond that, I get frustrated. I get angry and I grow merciless. What's your number? How about you? The point of Lamentations 3, what we're learning here, is that our God is not like that. He does not have a number. It's infinite. As one commentator on Lamentations writes about this poem, about the context here, each new day the proofs of God's grace flow from his compassionate nature. Each new day dawns with the possibility of covenant renewal for a punished people. Now listen, for us in Christ today, here's the translation, ready? Every day we have opportunities to see evidences of God's grace around us. We're invited to see those evidence, that evidence around us every single day. And in Christ, in Jesus, through his work on the cross, on our behalf, there is hope for renewal and repentance every single day. His mercy is new every morning. Let me just invite you to do something right now. Raise your hand if you're running on empty. Raise your hand if you've come to the end of yourself and dealing with your own sin and you're overwhelmed with your own sin and your own evil in your own heart. Raise your hand if you've got nothing left. Good. Good. Because God is not running on empty. We can never exhaust the richness of his mercy and grace. He has always something left. And what does it require of us? How do we tap into this, so to speak? How do we draw from his riches? Only that we would make him and him alone our portion. That's all he requires. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. See, I have no doubt that many of us have no idea what I'm talking about to know God in his infinite riches towards us, in his mercy and grace. It sounds like rhetorical flourish. Sounds empty. But I want to suggest it sounds that way because perhaps the Lord is not your portion. See, moving from hopelessness to hope begins with an honest recognition that what we've hoped in previously has failed us that what we put our faith in previously has not come through for us, has brought us, in fact, to this place of hopelessness. I want to give you the example of, of Joni Erikson Tada. Uh, you might know her story. Joni Erikson Tada is a Christian author, writer. She was paralyzed, as a, in fact now a quadriplegic, at the age of 18 when she dove into a shallow lake, uh, immediately paralyzed. And understandably, During her rehabilitation, she wrestled with severe depression and anger and even contemplated suicide. And it was in this place, this Lamentations 3, verse 17 to 18, happiness is gone from me, I have no hope, place, where Joni whispered a prayer to God that changed her life having seen the emptiness of everything, the meaninglessness of everything, she whispered a desperate prayer to God that opened the floodgates, so to speak, to his love. Listen to her explain. Despair that rises in a direct and vertical line to God opens us up to change, real hope, and the possibility of seeing God as he really is, not as we want him to be. Once we give an inch, God will take a mile. He'll take a million miles. We could say it like this. The prerequisite of hope is hopelessness in the things of this world. The prerequisite for capital H hope, lasting eternal hope, is hopelessness, faithlessness in the things of this world to satisfy you is having absolutely no hope that your job or your family or sex or money or whatever could ever be your portion. And once these things have been exposed as empty, as meaningless, now is the room cleared to be furnished with the glorious hope that God's mercy never ends. That's truth number one. God's mercy never ends. Ever, ever ends. Second truth is this. How do we move from hopelessness to hope? Well, secondly, we learn to wait on the God who is worth waiting upon. We learn to wait on the God who is worth waiting upon. Verses 25 and 27, they read like this The Lord is good to those who wait for Him, to the soul who seeks Him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for a man that he bear the yoke in his sorry the yoke in his youth. See, the poet waits for Jerusalem's restoration. He, he's moved from speaking as a sufferer and now speaks to us as a sage, as a wise teacher. He's teaching us what is good and right and wise in this situation of suffering, and what is good for us to do in the midst of suffering, in the midst of fog. Well, it's good for us to wait, to wait. More specifically, we wait on the good God who is worth waiting upon. I think of the life of Paul in the New Testament. In 1 Corinthians 12, Paul tells us that the Lord had given him a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan, to keep Paul, he writes, from being conceited. Uh, boastful, proud, in the visions that he'd received. Now, we don't know what this thorn in the flesh was. Maybe it was an illness. Maybe it was demonic torment. We don't know. Whatever it was, it led Paul to write this. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this. This is the thorn in the flesh, that it should leave me. But he said to me, and this is the Lord speaking to Paul, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is Is made perfect in weakness. Notice two things about Paul's waiting on the Lord. First, it is active. He is pleading, perhaps even lamenting, for this thorn to be removed. See, waiting on the Lord is an active reality wherein we consistently bring our laments and pains to Him. It's not nothing or doing nothing, it's an active patience. That's the first thing we should note. Second, notice that it was in Paul's pain and in his waiting, in his waiting, that he learned something that would go on to define his ministry, especially to the Corinthians. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. If you read First and Second Corinthians, you know that weakness is a major theme in those letters. It's in a season of waiting that Paul learned that. See, with God, our waiting is never wasted. It's never wasted. And yet we rage against these moments, don't we? We refuse to keep silent. We, We work furiously to assert our control. And I speak with so much knowledge because this is me. I hate waiting. I hate waiting at a stoplight. I hate waiting on God. I don't like waiting. And yet we're reminded, it is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. So together, we must lift our eyes to the good God who wants to do good things in the lives of those who are willing to wait for Him. That's truth number two. Truth number three. How do we move from hopelessness to hope? we recall that it is God and God alone who will speak the final word. We, we refuse to be overcome with hopelessness because this we call to mind that death and pain and suffering and Satan will not have the final word on our life or in our life. Look at verses 31 to 32 with me. For the Lord will not cast off forever, but though he cause grief, he will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love. Now, this truth will be the briefest of of all of them, but this must be said. The poet is convinced that the judgment of God will lift, that he will have compassion. He will act according to his steadfast love. Jerusalem will rise again. destruction does not have the last word. And it's the same for us. We, like the poet, we also wait for Jerusalem. We wait for a heavenly Jerusalem. Our author Mark Vergrop he writes this, Lament can point our hearts towards a future victory. A future victory. Through the tears, we can still believe that the final word has not been spoken. When we as a church forget about the return of Jesus. That Jesus is coming back to judge the living and the dead on a day that we don't know, but he'll come back and he'll do it. When we forget about this, we understandably, we grow hopeless. We grow hopeless. But can I just say something that's very simple to you this morning that maybe you've forgotten and just hear this? Things will not always be like this the world will not always be like this. These unjust laws, these unjust ways will not remain forever. The vitriol spewed online will disappear and be gone. The wars that brutalize the innocent will stop. The erosion of creation will cease. The division and hatred between races will become like a bad dream. None of this evil, hear me, Christ city, has the last word. See, believing a full gospel means reminding ourselves of the return of Jesus. He is coming back to make all things new. And none of what we feel and none of what we experience And none of the sin that torments us or plagues us will have the last word. You have to believe that. You have to. We must remember that. We must recall that it is God and God alone who is good and just and right who will have the last and final word. That's truth number three. Finally, our last truth, truth number four. And really, what I want to suggest is the theological heart of Lamentations. Uh, The the, the part of Lamentations that teaches us about this God and and the heart of who He is. The heart, indeed, of this entire book is found in verse 33. Uh, Even in its structure, this is the center, if you will, of the book, its climax. See, how do we know His mercy will not end? How do we know that He is worth waiting upon? How do we know that he will speak the final word? Because listen, Christ City, God does not afflict from his heart. Look at Lamentations 3.33 with me. For he does not afflict from his heart or grieve the children of men. Now before we explain or I explain what this means, I want to take us to another verse in Isaiah. In Isaiah 28, we find these words. For the Lord will rise up as on Mount Perizim, as in the valley of Gibeon he will be roused, to do his deed, and it speaks of judgment here, to do his deed. Strange is his deed. And to work his work. Alien is his work. These two verses. Lamentations 3.33 and Isaiah 28.21 have led theologians to consider the, the judging or punishing work of God as his strange work. His strange work. A work, as Lamentations qualifies, that does not come from his heart. Now what does that mean? That this does not come from his heart? It means this. While God judges, and he does judge, He does not do it with delight. He doesn't savor in the work of judgment. His deepest heart is Israel's and ours' merciful restoration, our merciful renewal. We can think of it like this. Some of you know that on Sunday morning, you can find me after the gathering, uh, typically sprawled out on my couch, like half sleeping but half awake, watching the football game in the background, right? The classic dad move where I'm watching that but I'm really sleeping, right? You know what I'm talking about? And and inevitably, one of my young sons will, will come up to me and he'll jump on me and he'll surprise me and he'll wake me up. And do you know what comes out of me, what proceeds from me when I'm caught unaware? Maybe you can guess. It's anger, it's annoyance, it's frustration that my son would interrupt my relaxation. This pours out of me when I'm caught unaware. And in doing so, it reveals my character. It reveals my deepest heart. Now, I know this is not possible, but but go with me on this. What do you think would come out of God if we caught him unaware? If we caught him by surprise? See, for many of us, our vision of God is that He is slowly but surely accumulating wrath, accumulating and building up anger towards us, slowly, slowly, and that His anger is on this hair trigger. And if I make one one, one false move, here comes hell. Here comes wrath. But that's not how the Bible portrays our Father. Listen to how another pastor Dane Ortland, listen to how he writes about what our Father is eager to do. He asks, the question we're asking, but what is his disposition? What is he on the edge of his seat eager to do? And Ortland writes, if you catch me off guard, what will leap out of me before I have time to regain composure will likely be grouchiness. And he writes this, if you catch God off guard, what leaps out most freely is blessing, the impulse to do good, the desire to swallow us up in joy. See, above all else, the poet can have hope that Jerusalem will be restored because he knows the heart of God, his merciful and gentle and kind and loving It is this God who, in verse 55, we are told to call upon. It is this God who is merciful and gracious, who, in verse 56, hears our plea. It is this God who, verse 57 reminds us, comes near to us and speaks the words, do not be afraid, do not be anxious. He speaks these words over us. My mercy will never run out for you. I've got good things to teach you when you wait for me. Death and sin and the evil you see that won't have the final word, I will. And though I judge, I do not do it from my heart. Instead, I have oceans of mercy and grace stored up for any of those who would turn to me. and who would ask? Let's pray. And so, Father, we come to you now boldly in Jesus, trusting in Jesus' work on the cross and his resurrection as payment for our sin and new life for us. We come to you now in him, in Jesus, and we boldly ask that you would pour out those storehouses of mercy and grace which you eagerly save up to pour out on your children. Would you pour out those upon us this morning? Would you have grace and mercy towards us? Would we know that you see us, you hear us, and that by your Spirit you are near to us? We love you. We are so thankful that it is to you and you alone we can pray. In Jesus' name, amen.